Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals. So if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. everyone and welcome to If You Don't Mind. I am your host, Madeline Cherrington. This is episode seven and I am so excited to be back. Yes, I've had a few weeks off which were much needed. I I think I was doing that thing where I just say yes to everything and just overwork myself and overexert myself and then I and then I crash and burn because <laughs> I'm a dumb dumb. But it's okay. I'm well. I'm rested. I actually had a monster head cold, which was fucked up. Um, I also got bangs, so that's great. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of, is there anything else important that I need to update people? I mean, a lot of stuff happened in the world, but you know what's important is that my hair is different. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, this is episode seven, and we have a great guest for this episode. His name's Andrew, and he is just fucking funny. He made me laugh so much. And it's interesting when you're talking about a subject that is as intense as uh, depression and, and, and also suicide, to still have that ability to kind of, and remain lighthearted, which I really appreciated. Uh, Andrew is a really intelligent, thoughtful, articulate guy. And there are times, and you might hear it in the podcast, where I was just, where I was just stumped by things he said and, and sometimes had to really think about what my next question was going to be. Uh, he could probably do the podcast himself, to be perfectly honest with you. Just a little bit of a trigger warning for you guys. There is quite a lot of talk around uh, suicide in this discussion. Uh, quite graphic descriptions at times. So if, again, today it's not your day and you're not feeling up to it, that's fine. Tap out and join us another day. But no, it's it's a really good episode and I really I really enjoyed listening to it over and over again during the editing process just because he he describes depression in a way that I have never heard nor thought of and and it's great to hear from a young man in his 30s talking about mental illness, trying to be as open as possible, and I guess trying to break down those barriers when it comes to men talking about their mental health. So let's do it. Episode seven, Andrew, it's a great one. I hope you enjoy it. Andrew, welcome. Oh, well, welcome, Maddie. <laughs> to your own show. I know. Thank you. No one's ever, ever like, welcomed me before. Yeah, well, you should feel the same sort of warmth in the environment. If we're going to have a constructive conversation, mm. it should be a, an environment of welcome. Maybe you should just host this show. Maddie. look, I've really wanted to dig into <laughs> the big issues. I know I said I didn't want to talk about it, but Game of Thrones. Right? Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> we're not talking about it. That's no, I think, I think if we were to talk about it, it would take up the entire length of this, of this podcast. Well, I feel like that's what the D&D should have done with the show. Mm. It, it spent more time with it, but they just didn't. I know. And then there's all those issues with like plastic water bottles and cups being, you know, in in, in different shots couple. and stuff. Yeah. Look, money is a powerful drug. Mm. So 
Andrew, can I ask you to just give a little bit of an introduction to yourself? What do you do? Sure. What are you about? What's your what's your vibe? Oh jeez! Uh, all right, distill distill me, man. Like uh, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of a dude. I I uh, I, I work a job. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, every person on earth. Yeah. Cool. Every, yeah. Okay. Yep. So I'll, I'll narrow it down a little mm, bit further. Mm, mm. Uh, I'm a male, mm-hmm. um, and I, I guess uh, my thing is is that uh, traditionally uh, I've always been kind of a person who is quite polarizing. When you mm-hmm. meet him, mm-hmm. um, I've you know people either like me, they really vibe with me, they think I've got great charisma, or they look at me and go, "That guy is a self righteous prick. He's an asshole. He's a dickhead." No. And and it's fair enough. I don't disagree with it. Um, but ultimately, when you cut away at that service, it's all personas. And, and sort of at the at the core of it, I'm a guy who's really struggled with his mental health. Um, I'm a guy who. Uh, has grown up in an environment where, as a male, it's not okay to talk about it um, and sort of tried to build a life off the back of that. And I've had every opportunity to succeed, came from a very wealthy family. Well, not very wealthy. It's not, <laughs> it's not like Pekrath, like, you know, throwing... But well off. You were well, well off. Well off, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. We, we all, we, you know, there was no reason why we couldn't succeed as kids and uh, still have had trouble trying to find my feet in the world. So I guess that's that's me. Okay. And I guess it's kind of been quite hard to get men on this podcast. I think obviously there is that issue of talking about this stuff uh, when you're a man. Right. What's that been like to kind of come to terms with? I mean, it's not it's not easy, right? So it's like you, you don't come to terms with it mm. as a man because you, you don't want to be accountable for, for the idea that you have a personality flaw, um, which means you could be weak. Mm. It's all about weakness. Well, in, in my case in particular, but also from the vibes that I get from other guys, it, being perceived as weak, and, and a lot of that, and, and this is the interesting part, I think, is a lot of that is projected out from women as well. I, I think women don't want to see weak men, mm. and that's what makes it really difficult. Uh, one of the best quotes I heard was uh, from one of – are you familiar with Brene Brown? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Brene Brown was having an interv- uh, was doing a book signing, and a man came over and was like, how come you're not doing any research into vulnerability in men? And she was like, oh, it's just never really crossed my mind. Mm. And, he, and he basically said, look, my wife and my daughter are the two people I can't fail because they want to see me – they don't want to, they, they, they don't want to see me fall off the horse. Mm. And so I think, yeah, it, it's always been difficult to talk about uh, who you are and, you know, what's going on um, because you don't want to be perceived, you know, as weak and mm. – you, know, you can mask that in several ways. Humor is one of them. Drinking is one of them. Uh, drugs is another. And, and in masculinity and in culture, that's kind of the way that you do it. And everyone thinks that shit's cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I think most men probably think that. Yeah. And I think most of the people, men, most of the men I know, act that way and think that that's the way that they should be acting. Yeah. But if anything, it's just yeah, it's so it's so detrimental to their actual mental health. Yeah, I think it's like because men don't, because men want to be cool. Mm. Right and and doing this is not cool. No, 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 no. So it's like when you get together with the boys and with you know, the boys. Oh, I love boys. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> but you get together with them and, and look, I, I I think it's progressed, and I've been I've started taking it too because I've got a lot of strong opinions about mental health. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I take it to them and I say to them and I go, look, look, I'm really struggling. We've had suicide in our group. Um, you know, I've had a few attempts and uh, we've had someone complete. 
if if that's mm. a way of saying it. Yeah. But it, it, that's the thing is that sort of wakes everyone up a little bit. And, and when you when someone like myself who, who's been through it can explain to them the reasons why this happens, then people are more open to it. Mm. And but traditionally the thing is is men are the ultimate maskers of their emotions. They have no idea how to get in touch with them. And therefore, you know, saying, why don't you want to talk about your emotions? That's going to make a man immediately uncomfortable because, first of all, I've done so well at hiding them that I don't know what they are. Yeah. And now you want to talk about them. So, yeah, that's sort of where you get to where you are. Shit, that, that is so that's such an articulate way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all about masking stuff. I feel like I've never heard a man explain it so well before. Oh, I've had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> so what was your childhood like? What was growing up in Goulburn? Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, yeah. What was that like for you? Look. I'm not a big proponent of, uh, you know, the, you, where you come from sort of makes who you are or anything like that. I think it's a combination of being born and biology with your social circumstance. And, mm. you know, growing up, uh, you know, if when you look at look at the outside, and I'm probably going to throw my sister and my brother under the bus, although I've done this personally, so that, that it'll be no shock to them. <laughs> um, but sort of growing up was fine for me. I, I was popular. Um, I had girlfriends when I was 11 and 12. Oh, my know. God, ladies, man. Yeah, oh, mate, I was killing it. I, so I've never had a – that was the purplest patch I've ever had. <laughs> um, but, yeah, sort of we, we were going through that situation and, and at home – you know, my, my sister's six years older, my brother's eight years older. Uh, I started to develop habits of isolation. So I would go into my room. I had no one to socialise with at home. And then uh, when I was about 12, uh, I got into conflict with the prettiest girl in school who I was dating. And I said, oh, I don't want to date you. I want to date this other girl now. And so the, the school then isolated me. And so I became very accustomed to being isolated. Fuck. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time by myself, essentially. And, you know, there'd been meetings sort of from the age of about six, I'd always had a fascination with violent thoughts. Um, and I love violence in general. I was very fascinated by it. I watched Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs when I was eight. What? Yeah. Oh, my God, no. I yeah, was yeah, not yeah. allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah. My brother, my brother showed it to me. Okay. So, again, I blame him. No, no. <laughs> But yeah, so, so there was sort of a bit of bullying going on at home. Mum uh, was working a lot. Uh, you know, she, uh, you know, one of the most, uh, I think everyone says this, but you know, the woman I admire the most in my life <laughs> is my mother. Um, but, you know, she was working very hard. She was, a, you know, a Catholic do doctor in a Protestant world. And in the 70s, that was not cool. I mean, a lot of people forget that, that, you know, Christianity's a shit. Yeah, but also Christians were shit to Christians. Oh, my God, yeah, most, Catholics yeah. And, oh. As as the recently worst. as the seventies, so yep. it's like forty years ago, fifty years ago, and so she had to go through that. And then uh, dad, love him to death, he's struggling with dementia now, but was also a very distant father. So there was just a not a not a wealth of warmth in the family, mm. but still very supportive. Um, you know, vigorous debates at the dinner table, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, sort of, uh, I would say ultimately the childhood w w was punctuated by isolation. Shit. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's not good. I mean, okay, so when you got to high school, what was that like then? To come, So I assume this was happening in primary school. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then you got to high school. Did you kind of have a fresh start or? It was a bit, but it was boarding school. So I was isolated Shit. from family. Okay. And then boarding school was great because it did give me the camaraderie with the boys. Mm. Actually, uh, the, one, boys, yeah. the, the boys are. So one of the funniest things actually was when I went to university uh, one of my friends pulled me aside and said, dude, you can't scratch your dick when you're talking to girls. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I had developed a habit from going to an all-boys boarding school where I would scratch my dick during <laughs> conversations. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. 
Du Bois. Um, but yeah, so, but that's where I think, you know, I thought it was great. I, I had a good time. I got over it as I got older. Mm. Um, I didn't like the routine. I didn't like being told what to do at a boarding school, all that kind of stuff. And I, I started to not enjoy the the camaraderie between t- between everyone, mm. which was sort of there was no vulnerability. There, right. It was all you know, put on a face, um, be stupid, be humorous, get into fights, get drunk, and that you know nothing's wrong, mate. You know we're just we're the mates, and mm. that never resonated with me. Um, and sort of the pressure of year twelve, and I'm sure kids are still going through this. Is you, you know that's when I actually started to have the first suicidal ideations. Okay. It's just, there's no, there's no point to this. And, mm. and that's where it all sort of started. I mean, yeah, I could have a conversation for hours about how I think like the HSE is a general thing. It's just so toxic for, for young people. Yeah. The amount of pressure that they're put on, even in, in this day and age, yeah. is it ridiculous? Yeah. And it's, it's meaningless. Yeah. It's totally meaningless, especially when I think, cause with, when you're at school, it's kind of made out to be the be all and end all. If you don't get a good grade, your life is over. Yeah, yeah. And to put that amount of pressure on young people is just like absurd. But it's not. That's the thing. And I think it's, it's a false premise. Mm. Uh, what's the actual fallacy? I think it's an apex fallacy or something, but it's a, you're saying like, this is the ultimate thing that can happen to you. Mm. But realistically for me, I did okay. I, I think I got like an 89 UAI, uh, which was the lowest. Back in the day. Back in the day. UAI. Showing my age. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's like uh, my, uh, that was the lowest in my family. I remember distinctly that. Oh, and no. okay. And I didn't give a shit. And everything was fine. And then I went to university and literally it took me seven years to do an arts degree. And at the end of it now, I'm as successful as I could possibly be. Hmm. And, you know, the university degree maybe got me an opportunity here or there. But realistically, it was all circumstance and pulling my finger out of my ass and doing some work. Like, that's it. If you've got enough, yeah, anyway, it, it's ridiculous. And I think it's a mentality pushed through by baby boomers because yes. they want to see doctors and lawyers because that after the depression, baby boomers were raised that you need to find a good job because mm. if this economy goes to shit, you need a trade and you need a skill. Yes. And so they pushed that onto the kids. And now we're graduating 12,000 lawyers a year and what is it, 16,000 doctors for 4,000 places on the Oh my side. God, yes. Again, so, I could talk about this for hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not go down this road. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So at what age um, did you kind of start experiencing symptoms of depression or did you start thinking, oh, maybe there's not something not right going on with me? I never thought anything was wrong with me. Really? Until okay. I was until my second suicide attempt. So okay. or was it third? Might have been third. No, second. Okay. So when, when you came to that first attempt, yeah, yeah. what was happening in your life? HSC. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, uh, I always say it's two suicide attempts because I always consider the first one a joke. But it was like, uh, it's got, it's kind of hard because you always, I always thought it was just me being a pussy. Like, mm-hmm. That's a big word that comes up yeah. in in my head is you're a pussy. So, and I think it just comes up for men in general. Um, but it's a yeah, like a, I, I just put a tie around my neck, uh, tied it to, uh, and hanging's been a big motif in my head, which has now evolved into something else. But essentially yeah tried to kill myself there put the the tie around my neck and then uh tried to use my weight as leverage to choke myself unconscious mm. um but and this is it's funny how the inner critic talks to you but the actual curtain railing couldn't support my weight and it broke and my first thought was you're too fat to kill yourself <laughs> so yeah so that was the first one and that was mainly because i was falling behind on work in the hsc and i was like if i can't do this i can't face my parents and i can't face the future mm. um and that was sort of the first time that i thought it was you know there was no point to it 
And so, yeah, it, it sort of it, it goes it goes a bit on from there, I guess. It's sort of I didn't think anything was wrong with that at the time. I thought that was normal. I thought I thought it was a personality flaw, and I thought, you know what, like oh, I just got to spend more time with my friends and you know just pull myself out of this rut. It was always oh, I'm just in a bit of a rut. Mm. So I never really recognised it as a depression, and that sort of you know. Then I went to university and was very happy. wasn't quite the purple patch of primary school, but you know I had a lot of attention, not just from uh, girls, but also from blokes. Like I, was, I had a lot of fun, and I had well, a lot yeah, of friends for very, life. You're a very charismatic guy. Just talking to you now, mm. I can see you being the life of the party. And like, was there a lot of drinking and drug taking in your university career? Yeah, oh, and prior to that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I probably started drinking around about twelve, and it was sort of shit. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, absolutely. It's mother's milk, but it's like, <laughs> I think part of that is is that it it uh, it empowers you, right? Mm. So it it when you get to a point. So I think for me it was the the first stage of the journey was was recognizing that you have a problem, and it's not it's not alcohol, it's not drugs, it's this voice in your head that is trying to constantly seduce you and Mm. it is a seduction depression is always a seduction it's not saying like depression sucks or it overwhelms you or anything like that it is literally the sexiest most beautiful sexual paramour you can imagine constantly calling you back to bed and i think in my particular situation you know over the years what i've started to notice is that it will come in a variety of different ways and you've got to start getting better at recognizing the ways that they're coming I, i'm sorry i kind of forgot the question i started, <laughs> I started to get into my metaphor and i, I was like know. oh I'm i was re- very into that metaphor too. yeah yeah yeah. i, was, I, I went, got lost in it I, I went too far i'm sorry um no, no no i think i was asking you like yeah were you you, you were partying a lot and oh stuff yeah like yeah that. so, so was that how is that affecting you because obviously if you're drinking a lot and taking drugs a lot that's going to ma- mess vicious, your mental health vicious up. cycle so i don't know this right but then you've got the seductress in the back of your head but the Seductress is also really mean to you, and it's a constant critique. And, and from what I can paraphrase or understand tangentially about anxiety, it's it's somewhat similar. But with depression, it's very much you know anything that's a weakness. And, and for me, it's weakness, weakness, and being babied. Right? So you're a pussy. You can't take care of yourself. Uh, they obviously don't like you. They obviously don't care about you. No one can look after you. No one wants to be with you. You are unlovable. But when you drink. None of that. Hmm. There's none of that. And all of the positive qualities that I have about myself, um, without that critic in the back of my head, are suddenly open. And you begin to fall in love with it. You start to think that, oh, alcohol makes me funny or it makes me exciting. But no, that's actually just you've drowned out the inner critic. Hmm. And now you're actually being not yourself, but you sort of, you've got less inhibition about the way that you behave. Yeah. So, yeah, man, I was smashing it during university and, you know, started to sort of – I got into drugs probably around about 18. I remember on my 18th birthday, I took ecstasy for the first time. Felt like I was John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I just thought I was a king. It's a great and, drug. But yeah. Also, but also yeah. not – don't take it. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's actually it's really – well, we won't go down the road, but it's like it, the problem is is that what that does is it just catastrophically destroys your serotonin. And so in the run-up to both suicide attempts, so the two proper suicide attempts, I call them uh, – both in the lead up to them was probably about six to eight weeks of hard drinking, hard partying. And when I say that, it's like Friday knockoff time, I would be drinking through till about 5 p.m. on wow. the Sunday. Wow. And if I was lucky, 
we'd do cocaine on the Friday night and maybe hallucinogens on the Saturday and then recover back to work and then Monday come home, drink 12 beers, go to sleep. Drink twelve beers, go to sleep. So it's proper proper alcoholism as they define mm. it in their medical books. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's sort of it, that catastrophically messes up your, your inner wirings of your brain, and you are powerless to the seductress essentially at that point. Jeez, oh, that sounds like a lot. And I'm also super impulsive when I drink. So yeah. both super suicide attempts have been in mm. in that drunken haze, and it's a click, and it's happening. The second time. The first time was drunk. The second time was uh, high on cocaine, yeah, which is interesting. Do you abstain now from, like, drinking and drugs? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can't. It's it's one of those things. I, I You know, I understand the dangers of it and everything. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, people say it's probably the culture. But, again, you know, maybe I do need to stop and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's more, for me, it is, it's a really tough relationship. It's a really, really tough relationship because it is, like I said, that inner critic goes away. And I mean, like I said before, before we started, you know, I had a couple of beers before I came here, and it's gone. Mm. You know, and whether that's nerves before I come here or not, yeah, it's difficult. And it probably starts. It's starting to sound like I'm an alcoholic, and maybe I am. I, I don't know. Are we uh, uncovering something <laughs> else right oh, now? Jeez, scratch away the surface. <laughs> well, my, my therapist says that you know, you, maybe you should try quitting alcohol. And I've done it before. Like I've I've given up for the longest I've gone is four and a half weeks. Okay. And I've cut back dramatically on drugs. So they were always the biggest mental health demolishers for me. Mm. Any day after I used cocaine use, you know, I think most recently, I hadn't done it for about six months, then I did it in January, and I was crying all day Saturday and Sunday. Oh. So, yeah, it's just sort of, it smashes smashes me wide open. So that's not worth it. No. Um, and, you know, it's for now, for me, you know, drug taking will probably just be for bucks parties, I guess. Yeah, like yeah. a now and then kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. And like, okay, so when you finally started to see a therapist, <laughs> yeah. what, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? Did you kind of, was it after a particular event or did someone force you into it? Yeah, so the first suicide attempt, well, the first proper suicide attempt, he said in air quotes. Um, so I told, I was singing that song, The Last Day on Earth, to all of my friends while we were out drinking. And then I, I went home and, uh, yeah, I took uh, every single pill I could find in the house and then attempted to hang myself. But my friends sort of picked up on the signs and so they called the cops. The cops kicked me on the door. Next thing I'm in an ambulance and I'm having my stomach pumped and I'm, I'm in the hospital. Um, and how old were you when this was happening? I believe 24, 25. Okay. So after that, they kind of said, look, I'm not going to let you out of hospital until you see a psychiatrist. And part of that was is that I go and see a therapist. And my mother and father were sort of called in at that point. And, you know, mum didn't really understand. Um, I think she did, but she didn't. Mm. She was like, why? You know, like, if... mm. so yeah, we, we, we sort of, that all happened. And then, um, you know, I went and saw a therapist and they suggested drugs and I told them, yeah, cool, whatever. And then sort of did the mandated amount of therapy and then sort of just went back to my old ways, essentially. Mm. Did always saw it as that personality flaw and not the mental health issue that it is. Cause I, I didn't want to accept that I was being de- like, that I was depressed or that I had a weakness, um, um, and so, yeah, what wasn't long before I was off the Lexapro. I actually had had a time where they put me on Cymbaltal, which made me more suicidal. Um, but they sort of stopped that. And then, yeah, back to the wicked old ways of the West. And then that culminated again in a, in a period of I was having a really tough time at work. 
Uh, so I, had, I couldn't get any self-worth there. Uh, I had I had a really bra- bad breakup, probably be about 18 months prior, mm. and was feeling very alone, very isolated, and then, uh, yeah, went home one evening and attempted to hang myself again. And it was at that point um, my sister stepped in. Okay. And she sort of – that was when it started to get serious. Okay. So she sort of – she basically said, look, it just it, – I don't care – because you know, I was like, I, I can't really tell mum this stuff and I've got no one to talk to and I feel like I'm isolated and I'm going to turn into my uncle, but that's another story. Um, and my sister was just like, look, you've got to do something about it. Like, you can't be passive. Mm-hmm. And if you don't start doing something about it, you're just going to end up hurting me and you're going to end up hurting your nieces. And that sort of kicked me in the dick a little bit. It was mm. just like, yeah, you, you, you know, they're not going to understand. Of course. Yeah, where's Uncle Andy? And it's like, oh, well, he's dead now. I was mm. like, well, how did he die? And then my sister's the one who's got to have that conversation. So, that, And this is part of where I think the power of overcoming something like depression is you've got to remind people about that social connection. Um, so, yeah, so that was when I started to see a therapist, got a really good therapist, and that's when she actually, a funny story about that, she goes, <laughs> I sat there for the first three sessions, didn't say word so i was like this is turd and this is bullshit and you know you're not going to get into my mind fortress <laughs> and then uh, she had a bet with another therapist <laughs> we're pretty decent friends we're always worried about the appropriateness of our friendship but she had a bet with another psychiatrist or psychologist rather that i would not show up for the third session she lost a hundred dollars because i showed up and didn't say a word <laughs> i did say one word to her uh, but she so just sat there in the chair yeah my arms folded staring at her yeah oh, God. yeah i was the worst patient ever um, but around about the fourth session, that's when I started to talk and then it sort of dovetailed. And then mm. slowly but surely, I started to work out that you know, depression isn't a physical, like it's not a weakness. Um, it's a chemical imbalance. It's explained by science and there are ways to combat it. Mm. And you know, if you've got a heart condition or even if you've got something like cancer, you, know, you can fight that. It's, uh, you know, uh, you know with a heart condition, you know, you've got to look after your diet. You've got to be diligent about what you eat. You've got to be diligent in how you exercise. Um, and with cancer, you know, you can beat it into remission, but ultimately it may come back and you've got to be ready to fight it again. And it's the same situation with depression. It's the same situation with mental health illness across the board. Mm-hmm. doesn't go away. There's no silver bullet. It's just you and your illness and you've got to fight. A hundred percent agree. And that's the thing. People don't realize that suicide is basically the end of that. When people commit suicide, that's the equivalent of, you know, dying from cancer is that they haven't beat it. It's taken them. It beat them. Yeah. The seductress got what she wanted. Exactly. And that's, I think a lot of people were very kind of like, oh, why did they, that they have such a great life and their family's so good and they should just stick around. It's like, no, no, no. This is, this is basically like having terminal cancer. Like it's taken them. My highest, uh, any suicide attempt, my now my highest bracket for death, likely, likelihood cause of death is suicide. Yeah, because how old are you right now, Andrew? Oh, 32, going on 33. Yeah, so you're right in that kind of age yeah, bracket. Yeah, so I'm trying to beat 45. That's it, because then I get out of the bracket, right? Yeah. And I'm trying not to get divorced, so maybe won't get married then. But basically, you get divorced and you've got a history of mental illness, your number one likelihood more than prostate cancer, more than breast cancer in men. Um, <laughs> happens. It, yeah, it happens. But it, it's suicide. And that's the thing is I know it's knocking on the door and I know she's waiting. Mm. Uh, I know she wants me to come back and she can take care of me. But ultimately, you know, she's going to push me down the path of excessive drinking, excessive drugs, so that I can be impulsive and end my life. Mm. Mm. You So talking about this with your friends, like do you actually have a conversation with them about 
how you're feeling and if you're feeling like you're going into a bad place again, can you have that conversation with them now? No. No, not even now. No. no, no. Is that because they don't want to? No, 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 because this is the hardest part of it and this is where it turns on the head. I can talk to you about it freely now because I'm Mm. not actually that depressed. I am a little bit, Mm. but it's because this is another shield, right? So I'm putting up another shield to you, which is I've talked about my problems, therefore I'm safe. Mm. But realistically what I'm deflecting away is, oh, I've done my bit. But now when it actually matters, which is when I actually need to reach out to someone, that's when it's hard. Yeah. Because, again, it's coming back to a big thing for what I've noticed with people with depression is the idea of being a burden. Yes. So you, you want me, when I think I'm already a burden, to reach out and talk to you about being a burden come on like yeah. that's ridiculous yeah. and so that's where yeah it's it's very difficult for me um, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do so I had a doctor basically point a gun a doctor gun if you will uh, <laughs> at, say what doctor is this yeah, the best doctor ever <laughs> no it's um yeah, he basically said, look, I'm not letting you out of my office until you call two of your friends and tell them exactly what you just told me. And and I didn't want to do it. I said, I will, and then he's like, all right, well, option three is I call an ambulance and you go to hospital. Um, and I still think Dr. Richard Wilkins, wherever you are, no, <laughs> I, I don't think that's his actual name. <laughs> I can't remember his last name. But he, he uh, yeah, wherever you are, you're you're an excellent doctor because it, that sort of forced me to open up about when it's bad. But again, it's it, when it turns. Yeah, you know, I've got I've got the girlfriend at home, so I can't really hide from it now, which is good. Um, but yeah, when it turns and when it goes to that place, uh, very difficult for myself and I, and I believe other people who struggle with depression to actually reach out mm. and and to to ask them to do that is to ask a cancer patient to run a marathon or a cancer patient to walk into nuclear radiation. Like it's just, you're asking them to do exactly the opposite of what their brain is telling them. Like it's, it's very, very difficult. It's very, that's the grayest area I feel. Mm. And your girlfriend has her own mental health condition. Oh, tell me about it. Well, you guys, if you've listened to episode three, Emily (laughs) and Andrew are together Uh, in a beautiful relationship. Well, we listened to the podcast. I was like, I can do that. <laughs> I can talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so obviously Emily has her own struggles with anxiety. Um, and how, do, how does that work? Because, I mean, my partner does not have any form of mental illness. He does a very good job of supporting me, mm. obviously, through all my crap. Um, but how does it work when you're both, you know, basically you know, living with a mental illness? Yeah, so I just sit on the couch crying and she worries about how to get me off the couch. Um, oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. So. <laughs> It's 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 great because we yeah. understand each other. So there's that's actually how we started to fall in love. It was just we went to uh, an event about suicide awareness, uh, mental health awareness, and I broke down crying in the middle of it. Um, I couldn't I couldn't stop myself because it was resonating too mm. much, and uh, that's when we realised that we had a connection um, that was a bit more than just friends, um, and. That's sort of how it sort of progresses. So there's a level of support. I mean, obviously, anxiety, uh, which is the trouble that Emily has, um, you know, that's very much more in your face. Yeah. It's much more, it's a punchy mental illness. It's yeah, very, it really gets in there yeah, and has like, a go. Yeah, it's like, and it's very much, they're the opposite of each other in the sense that anxiety sort of projects out onto the world. Like, it's, it's like, I need you to help me with this. I'm going insane right now with all of these what ifs and how po- this is possible and these alternate realities that are built in the head while this depression is the opposite where it's like break, cut off, mm. back out, withdraw. 
And so when you're in a relation, I, I gesticulate a lot. Sorry, guys, you can't see this. So sometimes I hit the mic stand. That's um, okay. I talk with my hands all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's so I'm being much... very. I'm I'm trying very hard to not do it right oh, now. I can't help but do anything <laughs> but use my hands to talk. Um, but yeah, so when you're in a relationship like that, it obviously it is difficult because you know when I go into a slump, she's got to help me out of it. And when I'm in a slump, the things that get me out of it is to exercise, break the habits, all that kind of stuff, do the opposite of whatever patterns I'm in. And I'm, I don't want to. Mm. You know, I want to stay on the couch and watch Netflix. I want to binge play video games. I want to drink this bottle of wine. And I'm a chode. <laughs> <laughs> but she sticks with it. And, you know, she's very lovely. And then on the opposite side of it, but she understands that, you know, whereas someone who doesn't understand mental illness would find that frustrating that you're repeating these behaviors mm. and you're not learning anything from it. Whereas she can understand why that's happening. You know, that, yes. that, that there's something else there. It's an illness. He does very he do, good point. He doesn't control it, right? Yeah, because I think the main argument I have with my partner is, I thought you learnt from last time, why are you doing this again? Yeah. And it's like, I, I get that. I totally understand that. But it's there's just something, it's so, it's so much more stronger than just making a decision to not doing, do it again. Yeah. Or yeah. to not let yourself go down that thought pattern again. It's, it's so... It's so it's almost like intoxicating to kind of uh, I don't know how to explain it, but yeah. Well, it's it's, it's the the fact of like oh well, don't worry about that. For, for anxious people to tell them to not worry. Oh, oh thanks. Oh, I'm, I'm I'm cured. I'm fine now. Oh yeah, I totally didn't think of that. What was I thinking? I just was obsessing about nothing. Oh, oh I'm oh, I'm all good. I'm such an idiot. No, mm. but it's it's an illness, right? Yeah. It's, if it wasn't an illness, we wouldn't have that problem. It's like exactly. if someone could tell me not to be sad. One of the things I always hate is um. I had a friend once. I'd love him to death. Don't get me wrong, but it, he was. I was like, yeah, I get, I'm really sad, and I'm in the bottom of it. Oh, I'm. I, I know I'm heading towards it. And he goes, well, why don't you just go for a jog? <laughs> you know, I go for a jog and I feel better. And again, people project their reality back onto you, and it's like, mate, if I had the energy to go for a jog, I would. I probably wouldn't actually know. Uh, but Fuck that. yeah, yeah. But but that's the that's it. They sort of live in and an exercise. Don't get me wrong, is beautiful mm. to help with depression. And they say anxiety as well, but I'm not 100% sure. But And it does help me. But again, the point is is that you're being seduced by someone who takes away your energy, right? And takes away your energy for socializing, takes away your energy for to live. And then you're telling me now to do some living while you've got no energy for it. It's like, thanks, mate. Thanks. Really solved the problem. I know. I just wish – I sometimes just wish people wouldn't open their mouths. Yeah. Like but- I know that they're trying to help. That's it. That's it. But again, that's that's the that's how you actually beat it. Is you've got to put the plank down and take it for what it is, which mm. is the the light of God is in other people, and uh, you, you've got to hold on to that. And I'm not trying to preach or be Jesusy. That's just a metaphor. It's just other people is what gets you out of it. Right? Yeah. And other people is what will set you free with mental illness. A hundred percent. If you can't. Even if they say something chody um, or ridiculous, like go for a jog when you can't, take that f- at face value that they're saying, I care about you. So, yeah. yeah. No, I 100% agree. And again, that's another challenge, but yeah. Mm. You mentioned earlier that you actually lost a friend to suicide. What was that like? Did it kind of make you second guess what was happening with you or did you did it make you think things through more? No, it was kind of like, I mean, um, to say we were friends, um, he was... A friend of a friend, mm. but we got along famously um, when we did hang out. And I got a phone call, I would say probably about three and a half months after that, saying that he, he'd taken his own life. And in hindsight, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm. 
you can see all the warning signs, you know, excessive drug use, uh, pulling back, withdrawing from relationships, not talking to people, and then bingo, bango, he's killed himself. Um, in terms of reflecting back on me, uh, it makes you go, it makes you think about how you can stop it because it's the most preventable form of death. We mm. have a cure for it. It's, it's literally being alive. <laughs> like, mm. it, it, you know, we, we've got structures in place that help you overcome your depression, but the cure for it is ultimately to get back on with your life. And that's, I mean, it's, it's easy on paper, hard to execute. And I think all it really did for me is, is to figure out a way to, you've got to stop this awareness crap and you've got to start educating people about what actions to take. Yeah, because I remember, cause, so for people who are listening, I usually get um, our guests to fill out a little form gives me a little bit of an idea of you know what you've been through what your life's been like and you and you said very clearly that you want to talk about the fact that we are focusing too much on awareness and not enough of you know action yeah do you 100%. want to speak to that oh yeah absolutely like uh, i think are you okay day is a joke and i'll go so you on. don't like it no because it actually promotes the number one deflection ultimately the way i view yeah, i view social connection and vulnerability as the keys to actually overcoming an episode um, on a depressive scale. And Are You OK Day actually promotes the opposite of vulnerability. It's in the schoolyard, it has turned into a joke. Are you OK, mate? And then someone will be like, oh, no, and make a joke out of it. Or because that is, you are asking a very personal question in an impersonal way. And ultimately, most people will deflect with humor. Mm. So you're asking a question which is creating invulnerability. You're asking a question which won't, if someone actually is having a problem and does need help and reaches out, how do those people actually know how to help? Mm. You know, it sort of, for me, it became very much a joke. And the the real positive, tangible change that, that I've sort of seen with some of the experiments that I've had, with not just with my social group, is the power is is that the victim or the the sufferer of mental illness needs to take accountability. Nothing can change until you accept the fact you have an illness and you need to do something about it. Sorry. Mm. And I've seen that in multiple cases. And everyone who has recovered and those who haven't, those who have recovered took accountability and those who don't, don't take accountability. And the opposite side of that is that I think some of the times when I use these crappy metaphors to sort of describe things is you need to, as friends, know and keep in contact with people who have mental illness or or you're think they might have mental illness you need to be the guys who like bruce willis jump in the airplane and pull on the ejector seat for them because if if they're going down with the ship right if they're they're in the the f-14 of depression which is now both engines have failed and it's plummeting to the earth they're happy to go down with the ship in that sense and and they're not in control anymore Mm. each of those episodes for me in terms of suicide i wasn't in control and when you start going down that path and getting seduced by that beautiful, beautiful woman, <laughs> um, or man, if the if you go that way, I'm not judging, but it's the as soon as you start going down that path, it's it's game over. You don't you you're not in control. So it's up to the social group as well to take some accountability for their friends and to stay in touch and to force them to come out and to not take excuses and to if you give up you know, an evening to go around and visit them, take them food, help them clean their apartment. I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful things that you can do with someone 
is if you go around and they've, they've got a mess in their house, oh, just clean 100%. it up. Just clean it up for them because it's the environment as well. We'll clear that. If you can clear their house, you can help clear their head. So there's just that's the other part of it is you know there's responsibility from the sufferer, but then there's responsibility from the friends. And I, I tell you, you'll find out who your friends are if you ask them. It's like you ask them to move house. Well, you ask him to help you pull you out of a depression and you'll find out who your friends are. I think I've got two or three really good friends. Mm. And I think with, uh, like, Are You Okay Day, especially for men, Yeah. going back to what you were saying before, it's not a case of just, like, asking a question and then a man's just going to be like, yeah, actually, this is my life and this is what's happening. Yeah, no. I think with women, we're a little bit more emotional. This is a generalisation, but we're more willing to have those conversations and reach out. But men, the idea that just asking a question would then create some sort of you know resolution is 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 very it's very difficult to imagine i think for a lot of people well it's again it's coming back to what i was saying earlier it's like you're men are at like level one of the video game in terms of their ability to communicate emotions and their ability to even identify them Why, why do you think men get angry you know, the anger is just frustration with your emotions. Like you don't understand them or you don't want them to, to happen anymore. Men get angry all the time. We're also coached into that, by yep. the way. Don't cry. I still I still distinctly remember a rugby coach telling me, you know, when he was dropping me from the team, he's like, Don't get sad about this, get angry, you know, and that'll serve you well. So you, you get coached <laughs> yeah, you get coached. How how like toxic is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's toxic. It's it's toxic, it's dumb, it's stupid, but you know, that's just the way that it is. I don't think we're ever gonna shift that too far down the other way. Mm. It's just that that's I think the starting point is if you're angry as a man. It, that's some emotion that you can't identify yet. You don't understand it. You just spend time with the anger. Yeah, sure, go and get it out if you want. Don't punch anyone. But, like, <laughs> if you're angry, just flag with yourself that that's a problem. But, yeah, to ask a man, are you okay, is ultimately going to be met with derision. It's ultimately going to be met with some sick bands. <laughs> I've had some sick bands. Well, like, you know, I could be going home and drinking 12 beers and eating 400 pieces i got problems with binge eating disorder as well. But it's like you go home and be doing that and then you come into work the next day and just be like, fucking, yeah, boy. It's like, oh, I had the sickest night last night. I was on Tinder and I got like seven matches. Everything's fucking great in my world. And then like the bloke's like, oh, yeah, fucking Stoz is doing all right. Isn't you got seven matches on Tinder? Yeah, let's go to the pub and talk about it. Yeah, like that's – yeah. you're never going to have a situation – um, men are open to it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not throwing men under the bus here. I'm not a trader, guys. Um, <laughs> but it's it's more it's more to do with the fact that intimate conversations with men uh, and vulnerability with men, you know, happens in safe environments. Right? Uh, once you've got respect, uh, men don't. And in general, you shouldn't just be vulnerable with everyone. But men now are more receptive to uh, guys. It's not good. Right, um, which is good. There, there is progress there, but yeah, it's it's still a process. Mm, no, I hundred percent agree. Mm. And so, oh, we're running out of time. Oh, that's I, right. Yeah. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, I love talking. <laughs> I guess. Okay, before we go, if you were to give some advice to a man of your age or or even younger who is struggling with depression, what would that advice be? If you're too far gone, you need help, right? And the way you can recognize you're too far gone, and this is coming from my experience, is you're too far gone if if you can't stop yourself. If you're making plans to kill yourself, you're too far gone. If you're in a situation where you can't, 
take a phone call, you're too far gone. So in those situations, you actually need to you need to pull the eject button. You either need to go to hospital or you need to call your friend. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can't do that, you're lost. You, you're going to lose. You, you're too close to the edge. But outside of that, if, if you're tipping, and the way you can identify your tipping is just your bad habits are creeping up and you're not taking care of yourself, uh, shake it loose. Like You've just literally identified the habit so for me, for example, and for anyone out there that, that might be struggling with something right now, you know, for me, it's I'm eating too much or I'm drinking too much or I'm doing this and it, it will slap you in the face. But at that point, you've got to, again, put the handbrake on and just like, what's the, what's the one thing I don't want to do the most? For me, it's exercise. So I've got to go and do exercise. And so it's been this, this situation of you, it's really, really difficult. And then first, and then call someone, call someone and tell them, I, I can sit here and say that. And I don't do it. I know. <laughs> but, but it's good advice. It is good advice. It's what so, you need to do. Right? The fight back against the seductress, right? Mm. You know, that she's she's on your shoulder. And, and it's helped me and it has helped other people that I've spoken to about depression is to visualize it in some way and to embody it. And for me, it is a seductress, you know. Um, so, yeah, just be just be conscious uh, that, that, that her end game is to lay with you and lay with you means you die. So, yeah, you, you've got to constantly fight against that. I love that. Hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. You've been very articulate, and I'm just I'm really happy to have a guy on. To be honest, I think the problem is is that yeah, again, it's the emotional immaturity of it. It's the Emily and I always unpack people, <laughs> so we're like, <laughs> let's unpack that. Oh my god, I hate that term. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's I lo- university. I lo- let's unpack this. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like ironic. So it's like someone will be like, oh, you know, oh my boyfriend, ex boyfriend just sent me a letter. I'm like, let's unpack that. <laughs> Why do you think he's sending you a letter? Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's that idea of having to address your emotions. Mm. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. This has been great. No, Maddie, thanks thanks again for having me. And uh, this is a really positive thing that you're doing. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. Bye, guys. Wasn't Andrew just hilarious and engaging and articulate and the best? Ugh, such a good dude. A really good dude. I'm really glad... He was brave enough to come on and have a chat about things that a lot of men just aren't good at having conversations about. And yes, I guess this is a generalization I am making, but if we look at the statistics and we look at how many men are committing suicide in our nation, there something has to give, you know? And I think the more we have men like Andrew come on and tell their stories, the more likely other men out there are going to be able to do the same thing. So props to Andrew for being so brave and just as I said, so articulate when it comes to this very, very important subject. Uh, guys, I'm going to do my little social media spiel just before you all, you all leave. But first, I want to do a little shout out because I actually have patrons now. Yes, I have six wonderful patrons and... And one of the benefits of becoming a patron is that you get a little shout out on the show. Mm-mm-mm. How lucky for them. So... The first one is my lovely partner, Lennon. Thank you for just being lovely. (laughs) The second is one of my best friends, Maddie. Thank you so much, Maddie. You are the first person to become a patron and I love you. Third is Dean. He is my roommate and although he will never admit it, he loves me a lot. (laughs) Uh, The fourth is my other roommate, James. You're like an older brother to me. And I think you're you're a really sweet guy. Uh, I, apparently, this is also going to include compliments, maybe. 
Uh, <laughs> my fifth patron is Claudia, who I worked with um, back in my retail days, who has been such an avid fan of this show and just makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. So thank you, Claudia. And the sixth is a girl named Haley. Haley, thank you so much. I don't even know you and you're, and you're contributing so much to me. I really appreciate you. I don't know where you are in the world, but thank you. Uh, if you want to become a patron, you can go to Patreon and type in If You Don't Mind. You'll find it there. And you can select either $2, $5, or $10 as the amount you'd like to give per month. Uh, as usual, I'm on as usual, we're on Facebook, If You Don't Mind Podcast. We're also on Instagram, If You Don't Mind Podcast. And on Twitter, If You Don't Mind P. Because, yes, I still haven't got around to changing that. Um, and if you would like to be on the show, have something interesting to say, or just want to have a chat, you can reach me at If You Don't Mind Podcast at gmail.com. I think that's all of it. I have so much anxiety when it comes to getting this all out. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, I will see you all in two weeks for another amazing story with another inspiring individual. Um, and as I usually say, please be kind to yourself and others. And when you can, try and listen to someone else's story because you just don't know how much of an impact that's going to have on your life and their life. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye.